Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm here with Dr. Michael Roos and uh, today we're talking about Understanding Natural Selection, his new book. Uh, Dr. Michael Roos is also the author of The Gaia Hypothesis, Darwinian Heresies, Darwinism as Religion, among many, many other books. Uh, Dr. Roos, wonderful to have you here today. Well, glad to be here. I don't know why you're choosing the most boring of my books, but go on. <laughs> I... <laughs> was not expecting you to say that. Thank you. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit um, why this book. I, obviously, your entire career, you've been working on uh, Darwin and you know philosophy of biology. Why this book in particular? Well, I suppose you start with why evolution in particular. And I guess the, uh, as it were, entree that I have to this whole thing is that I'm interested, I mean, you know, I, I, I did science as a, as a schoolboy. I did mathematics as an undergrad. Uh, so uh, I've, uh, and I've been a philosopher of science since then. So I've always grown up in a sort of society which accepts science as a given. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, that, that doesn't mean just physics and chemistry. It means biology as well. I mean, you know, to be honest, you know, one has doubts some days about sociology, but that's probably, you know, the fact that philosophers think they're the brightest people on campus, and anybody who's not a philosopher is obviously second rate. Uh, but um, <laughs> as, as, you well, as you well know. But anyhow, so, I mean, this all came with the territory. Um, because I grew up in England, I did math, physics, math, physics and chemistry. And biology, uh, biology in the 1950s, was basically a subject for what one ed educators de de describe carefully as late developers. In other words, thick as two short planks. And I mean, the, 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 the funny thing is back in the 50s, uh, today, if you want to get into medicine, you know, you have to have straight A's from kindergarten on. But back in the 50s, medicine was not that highly regarded as a, an intellectual subject. It was for people who didn't do concepts. And uh, in fact, most of the kids I was at school with were going into medicine because their dads were GPs and they wanted to inherit the family practice. But so I never did biology in any serious way. Uh, and so when I came to write my dissertation, and I, I, I gather you don't have a PhD, but anyhow, that's, that's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll go on talking to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Anybody who's, who's, who's looked for a a PhD, as they call them in England and Canada, thesis, and as they call them um, in America, dissertation, knows that when you're looking for a dissertation topic, you want something where there's not too much written on it, and what there is written on it is not very good. In other words, you've got, you know, you've got a space for yourself, 
and lo- and you've got at least three chapters of criticizing others before you get to the final chapter and you say and now folks let me tell you my position yeah and uh, so i was it, it was recommended to me that i i mean obviously then you don't do human causation because you know you, you think of yes. the, the, you know the, the, or Kant on the categorical imperatives or Plato on the form of the good. I mean, you know, stay away from these things. Um, but anyhow, so I, I, I was basically recommended to me, and this was the early sixties. You know, why don't you think about doing something on biology? There's there's been nothing written on it very much, and yeah, what there is is not very good. And I did this, and. Um, the funny thing is, I mean, I've never taken a, a formal philosophy, a biology class in my life. But as soon as I got into it, I realized, you know, I found it incredibly exciting conceptually. And uh, so I've worked on it ever since. And also, uh, one thing was I did always have a fondness for doing uh, history. And of course, don't forget the 91, you won't remember, but the 1960s was the age of Thomas Kuhn. And the structure of scientific revolutions. And uh, Kuhn, Kuhn said, and I think it's very important, if you want to do philosophy of science, you've got to do history of science. And of course, uh, yeah, and we philosophers said, well, of course, we're brighter than anybody, including historians, so we can certainly do that. And so, uh, and of course, ev- ev- a biology evolution gets you straight into Darwin and the Victorian era, which for me was a joy because, you know, I, I grew up in England in the 50s, and, and so Charles Dickens and Anthony Trollope and all of these sorts of things were my meat and drink. So I was very comfortable with this. So I got into this, uh, working on evolution and those, sorts of, and those sorts of issues. And then being in North America, by the 1970s, uh, the creationist movement, in other words, biblical literalism, what used to be known as fundamentalism, started to rear its ugly head again. Now, why was this? Well, <clears throat> there had been a big creationist movement in the ninth, in the in the in the last century, in the in the uh, in other words, in the 19th century. But then in the 20th century, there was that famous trial, the Scopes trial in yeah. 1926. And basically, although Scopes was exonerated on a, on a technicality, the textbook publishers saw the writing on the wall. And education is not a federal thing in America. It's a state thing. And, of course, states buy textbooks. And so, in other words, textbook manufacturers want to know what's acceptable to the states. Well, you know, you're not just going to sell books to to New York. You're going to sell them to Florida and to Georgia and to Alabama. And it was pretty clear that talking about evolution was a no-no. So the 30s, 40s, 50s, although... There were a lot of exciting things happening in evolutionary biology with the coming of Mendelian genetics and that sort of thing. Textbooks just didn't talk about it at all. And then, of course, came Sputnik. What was it? 1957. And overnight, I still, I'm still—I'm old enough to remember you know, Sputnik on the, that Sunday. Well, you know, we talked in hushed tones. Did you know they put this in? And of course, what the Russians did was they not only put up, you know, this damn satellite, but they told us it's the size of two Cadillacs. You know, in other words, rubbing it in. Yeah. Well, yeah. To, to be, you know, to be fair to America, what happened was that. Oh, am I being blocked out by something? Hold on. 
I keep getting these things saying, update your machine. Um, what happened was that America realized that its science education was crappy and so did something about it. And what they call them, the biological curriculum science, or biological something science curriculum. They put out these textbooks. <laughs> and these textbooks talk about evolution. I mean, you know, they took, biology ones took, well, of course, the creationists saw this and, you know, they started to poop their pants. And so they started to react. And the famous, you know, their Bible was a Genesis flood by a biblical scholar and author, a, a hydraulic engineer, Whitcomb and Morris. And then uh, another chap called uh, Dwayne Teagish wrote a book called Evolution, the Fossils Say No. And so by the 1970s, one had this very strong reaction of biblical literalists who were by this time calling themselves creationists. And the thing was, they get into debates. They, 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 their key thing was debates with evolutionists. You'd have an audience of about 5,000, of whom 10, I'm sure, would be evolutionists, and the rest would be shipped in from evangelical you know, churches all over the state. But the thing was, these creationists were very good at debating, whereas for a lot, scientists said, awful. You know, they, you know, they <laughs> give the thing. And, they, and by the time they got to the main point, the, the moderator would say, right, your time's over. That's it. They'd say, I haven't got to. Mendelian genetics. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, well, I was asked to be in this, and I, I spent a lot of time teaching undergraduates. And I realized that a good joke is worth 10 arguments. And so I was a natural on this. And so, in fact, I got involved. I got involved in a court case in 1981, along with people like Stephen Jay Gould and, and that sort of thing. So I got involved in the whole question of creationism and evolution and that sort of thing. So in other words, already what was happening was, first of all, I was very interested in the history because of the Kuhnian thing. And I, I wrote a book called The Darwinian Revolution. Uh, and, um, but also I was particularly interested in issues like science and religion and you know, e evolution versus creationism and that sort of thing. And so <clears throat> I wasn't pretending to be... I mean, I'm not a scientist, so I wasn't pretending, you know, I mean, you want to do science, be like um, Peter Roseby Grant and spend every summer in the Galapagos looking at finches, which they've done yeah. for 40 years. No. Hmm. And, you know, they've done wonderful work, empirical work. Well, that's not what I do. I mean, I'm, as I say, I'm a philosopher and <clears throat> or <clears throat> I like to more describe myself as a historian of ideas like hmm. uh, Isaiah Berlin and that sort of thing. In other words, yeah. I'm interested in looking at, at ideas, particularly in their historical context, for the light that they throw on problems today. In other words, I'm not just looking at history for its own sake, uh, but at the same time, I'm not looking at history and saying, oh, we're better today. What I'm interested in is, you know, like, as an evolutionist, what does the past show us about how we behave today? I mean, hmm. you know, I mean we're caught in the past. I mean, yeah. you, you think, I mean, you think about, you know, being married and those sorts of things. These are all things that we've inherited from past things, whether it be Christianity and those sorts of things. Uh, you know, we don't have uh, that. Our, our society is very much a function of the way that it was in the past. And so I, I'm particularly interested then in evolution and those sorts of things. Well, interestingly, what became clear is. As, as the years went by and we got into the 1990s, it wasn't just the creationists 
who were having trouble with evolutionary theory, particularly Darwinian evolutionary theory, because a lot of philosophers were worried about it too, and not necessarily religious philosophers, although those who had some sort of religious beliefs were often very troubled, but others, because the main mechanism or the main cause of modern of Darwin's theory of evolution from the origin of species in 1859 is natural selection. And basically what Darwin says is there's always going to be a population explosion. More people or in, organisms are going to be born than can survive and reproduce. I mean, you know, you think you look at birds and they have, you know, a flock of every year. They have a litter of what, five, six, seven, you know, little little birds. Well, by next year, you know that out of those, let's say five, only two, if that, are still going to be living. Because right. otherwise, they're all going to be breeding. And, you know, before we know where we are, we won't be able to put a foot down without putting a foot on a red-winged blackbird or something like that. Because you know, right. that's, that's not how it works. Sure, sometimes you do get an explosion, like with indigenous species. I mean, in, in the as you talk about Florida, I mean, as you know, you go down to the Everglades and indigenous species like the python and that sort of thing are a real problem because they are exploding in number, as, as we well know. I mean, real issues. But we know perfectly well, even, even if that goes for a while, it can't go indefinitely. Because apart from anything else, there won't be enough food for the pythons. And right. so they're going to have to battle it out. I mean, you know, that's the way it's going to be. So what Darwin's, well, what Malthus said is there's always going to be this struggle for existence, which more than struggle for existence is a struggle for reproduction. And Darwin seized on this. And then he said, we know that there's always going to be lots of variation in populations. Now, he'd spent eight years working on, on barnacles of all the boring things. But the thing that it taught him was that there's no, no two barnacles are alike, that there's always variation. I mean, you look at you and me, for instance. We're both the same species, but whereas I'm tall and handsome and athletic and that sort of thing, you're a dumpy little guy who, you know, who, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. With you a know? scraggly beard. Yeah, no, absolutely. You got, you got it. Yeah, Mark, you. I can't. I mean, I've been, <laughs> I've been working on this for 60 years now. Look how far I've got. Anyhow, <laughs> so Darwin said there's always going to be variation. So some are going to get through and some won't. And those that do get through will get through because they're different on average from those that don't. And this will be a form of natural selection. Now, Darwin didn't pull selection out of the blue. I mean, he'd worked. I mean, he grew up in rural, uh, rural England where... And that, I mean, you, they'd had an industrial revolution. Well, an industrial revolution means you've got a lot of fe people to feed in cities by farmers who there are many less of them because they've all gone to the cities. So you've got to have an agriculture. I mean, an industrial revolution means you've got to have an agricultural revolution. And they realized that the secret to agricultural revolutions was selecting. In other words, select your bigger and beefiest uh, cows or steers uh, to feed rather than the scraggy ones. And more than that, breed from those. Yes. Breed from those. And so uh, if you've got, you know, if you're looking, if you've got shaggy sheep, breed from those 
rather than from you know sheep which you know aren't really covered or if you want you know more bacon breed from your porkier pigs and uh, and you know don't the, the lean ones leave those on one side as it were so darwin realized this and so he said we've got this natural form of selection which given enough time is going to lead to full bone change or uh, darwin the word evolution was coming in in the 1850s and herbert spencer was using it in the origin Darwin never uses the word evolution. The last word, however, is evolved. I mean, he normally talks about descent with modification. Uh, but in the later works, he talks about evolution. So, you know, I, I, although it's a bit anachronistic, I don't think it's it's false. So anyhow, so Darwin said, you know, evolution, it's going to lead to a tree of life. And then, of course, we can explain a lot of things like the fossil record. And one thing, of course, that Darwin was particularly interested in was geographical distribution. And he'd been to the Galapagos Archipelago, where you've got both these tortoises and particularly these little birds, the finches, and they're different from island to island. But more than this, they're like, although different, from the birds on the South American mainland. But they are not, in any sense, like the birds in Africa. Whereas, if you go to the Azores, which is a bunch of islands off Africa, the birds are just like those in Africa and not at all like those in Chile and Ecuador. So in mm. other words, Darwin said, how the hell do you explain this? Except yeah. that, you know, they came from Africa to the Azores. They came from the from Ecuador to the Galapagos. And when they got there, they, you know, they diverged and evolved. So as I say, it's interesting, although people, I mean, like, gish, evolution, the fossils say no. If you look at, if you look at evolution, professional evolutionary biologists, yeah, the fossil record's important, but it's always other things like like geographical distribution and embryology and those sorts of things that a professional evolutionist would would talk about first. If you said, why do you believe in evolution? That's the sort of thing. They I mean that they talk about what the grants have done, where they're showing how <clears throat> you get divergence in these finches from year to year and over the years. Uh, according to different climatic effects and those sorts of things. They're not, I mean, the, the grants aren't digging up and looking for fossil finches. Right. They're interested in the distribution of finches here and now and, you know, all of those sorts of things. So, as I say, this was Darwin's theory. Now, Do you in mind, the origin... Pardon go me. Ahead. Sorry, I, I did want to ask, because I, I think this is, you know, kind of at the beginning of your book, you talk about moving from artificial selection to natural selection as this yeah. metaphor that Darwin uses. Yeah. So, uh, and I think this ties to your, you know, as I look at the book, it seems like there's a professional uh, purview, right? Where you're talking about organicism versus mechanism. Yeah. And you, there's a lay view. So as we talk yeah. about uh, one of your, one of the common lay misunderstandings is about the metaphor of natural selection. Do you mind just yeah. touching on that briefly so that people understand yeah, well, what it means actually, that natural. Go ahead. Yes. Well, you see, okay. The thing is, Darwin's looking for a mechanism, and he thinks he found it. But the point is, for Darwin, it's not going to be just a mechanism. It has to be a mechanism which speaks to certain issues. Now, and I think that I mean this is what Kuhn taught us. I think it's very important. Though I like to say Darwin's a great revolutionary, but he's not a rebel, because in fact. Darwin gets so much of what he's doing from his, his environment 
and is backup rather than from other things. And I'm just going to take this off and go down to the other room because I pulled out a pamphlet. I want to read something to you sure. that Darwin read while he was searching for natural selection, written by an animal breeder who was not an evolutionist, but an eminent one in, 19, in 1809, the year that Darwin was born. And it, Darwin read it. It's not plagiarism, but you'll see how Darwin is not coming out of nowhere. As right. I say, great revolutionary, but no rebel. Hold on. Okay, here I am back again. I want to show you this. Uh, this is a pamphlet written by a man called John Seabright. I'm getting it back to front. Are you getting it right to front? Are you, are you getting it properly that you can read it? I can get it. I'm getting it properly. Okay, fine. Well, actually, what it says is the art of improving the breeds of domestic animals in a letter addressed to the Right Honourable Sir Joseph Banks by Sir John Sanders Seabright, MP. And the date is 1809. So what Seabright is talking about, because he's interested in that he's interested in uh, how you breed. I mean, this is the thing, agricultural revolution. Right. So Seabright is in this. And so what he's doing is writing pamphlets like we would today, except today we put it on the in we put it on the internet. Of course. What he's doing is writing these and circulating about the importance of breeding, importance of selecting, and how you can do this. But listen to what he actually says at one point, and I'm quoting this literally now. A severe winter or a scarcity of food by destroying the weak and the unhealthy has all the good effects of the most skillful selection. And notice the word he's using, selection. In cold and barren countries, no animal can live to the age of maturity, but those that have strong constitutions, the weak and unhealthy, hold on, do not live to propagate their infirmities, as is too often the case with our domestic animals. In other words, if you're out in the wild, you've got to have what, what it's needed. To this I attribute the peculiar hardiness of the horses, cattle, and sheep bred in mountainous countries, more than to their having been inured to the severity of the climate, in other words, Lamarckism, you know. Mm. Uh, for our domestic animals do not become more hardy by being exposed when young to cold and hunger. Animals so treated will not, when arrived at the age of maturity, endure much hardship, so much hardship as those who have been better kept in their infant state. So in other words, what Seabright is saying is we get a natural form of selection out there. Now, as I say, Darwin read this, and it's not Darwin's not cribbing it, because Seabright is not thinking of this in terms of evolution. But we've got Darwin's copy in, in the Cambridge Library, and he marks it up and says, oh my goodness, if we kept doing this, think of what, what the overall effect would be. So what I'm saying is then that Darwin gets all of this out of... Uh, out of his background. And I like my phrases, Darwin is a great revolutionary, but no rebel. In other words, Darwin is not sitting in a garret saying, you know, fuck you, Victorians, I'm going to shaft you. Darwin was a very rich Victorian who was doing very well out of being a very rich Victorian. I mean, his grandfather was just a sire of Edgewood. I mean, Darwin's family, and he married a cousin. Darwin's family was what I like to call Silicon Valley rich. I mean, these people, I mean, no, seriously, these people were multimillionaires, at least in our terms. I mean, really, I mean, very rich people. And so Darwin wasn't going to 
throw over, you know, kick against the, the traces. I mean, no, he was revolutionary. Now, one of the things, of course, that Darwin knew, and Darwin was brought up as a Christian, and he, he seemed to be a bit of a, a, not terribly gifted as a kid, not very good at math, and not very keen on, on his studies. And so what did a rich people do when you've got a son like this? You make him a clergyman. You make him a, a, a vicar in the Church of I mean, but in the Church of England, I mean. Why? Yeah. Because it's a, a job for it, it's a respectable job for a gentleman. You're not spending all your time drinking and hoy, you know, and you could get a, a, a living, as they call it, which is a lifelong, you know, become a vicar in a church. And then basically you get a curate to do all the hard work, a bit like professors getting graduate students to do all the marketing. <laughs> Things, you know, you know, nothing changes, nothing changes. <laughs> so, you know, in other words, it's a perfect job for a gentleman. Hmm. But in order to become a vicar like this, you've got to have a university education. And so Darwin goes to Cambridge, where one of the things they're doing is turning out young men who will then go into the church and become vicars. I mean, if you wanted to become a doctor, you didn't go to Cambridge. You went and, and trained, if you, you, you might go to Edinburgh or, or on the continent, or you went and worked with somebody in London. You didn't go, you didn't go to Cambridge to become a doctor. On the other hand, if, you, if the, the question was that you were going to become a vicar, then you basically had to have a degree from Oxford or Cambridge. So Darwin goes to Cambridge. And so what does he get? Of course, he gets some religious training. And what does that mean? Well, the big book then was Archdeacon Paley's Natural Theology, Proof for the Existence of God. Why, does, why should we believe in the existence of God? And of course, what Paley says is, look at the hand. What? The hand doesn't just happen. Well, actually, what Paley says is, if you're crossing a heath and... You came across this. You know damn well it didn't just happen. You know yes. perfectly well that this, as it were, wasn't like the rocks. You know that. You know that somebody had set out to design it. And for those listening, it's a watch. <laughs> yeah, for those listening, it's a watch. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyhow, so, so uh, Bailey says it ha there had to be some reason. Then Paley says, "Well, look, look." Actually, Paley says, "Look at the eye." The mm -hmm. eye is just like a telescope. Telescopes have telescope makers. Therefore, eyes have eye makers, the great optician in the sky. And so Darwin grew up on this. So Darwin has the view that if you're trying to understand organisms, they're not just, as it were, put together and working. They're working for some purpose. They're working for some end to see, to smell, to chew or whatever, but notice I'm, I'm an Englishman, I've still got my teeth, and by the way, they're not false teeth either, but they are crowned. Anyhow, that impressive, yes. Yeah, <laughs> tell me about English dentistry, anyhow. <laughs> so when Darwin's looking for natural selection, it's got to be a mechanism for change, but it's got to be a mechanism for change which can explain the design-like features of organisms. Yes. What? Aristotle called final causes. 
the yeah. purpose of them, the end. What, the, what more recent uh, thinking called teleological ends. So uh, this is the whole point about natural selection. Natural selection, Darwin says this, doesn't just lead to change. It leads to change of a particular kind, namely in the direction of adaptive advantage and the direction of final causes. <laughs> Organisms don't just change. They change for reasons. And so when you look, let's say, at, uh, well, I don't know whether Darwin came up with this, but when you look at, say, insects on oceanic islands like the Galapagos, why is it that insects, by and large, don't fly? Insects normally fly. And that's a good thing. I mean, you know, a fly needs to get the hell out of the way of you. You know, you're busy swatting it and the fly's already gone. But on oceanic islands, they can't fly. Well, why? Because if they fly, they get blown by the wind out to sea, and that's the end of them. So the successful ones are those that don't do much in the way of flying. So adaptation. So this is the sort of thing that Darwin is particularly interested in. Is so, why? Go ahead. I was going to say. So it's not even. It's not even that they change for a reason. It's that they survive for a reason, right? That's right. Yeah. That's yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah yeah. 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 Gotcha. So, but the interesting thing you see is Darwin wants to say, but the fact the variations on which you build are not directed, because right. if they are, you don't need natural selection. So what Darwin's okay. So what Darwin is trying to do is offer a mechanistic, a machine-like explanation of the living world. And particular, and he's going to do this not by denying what people knew, particularly the religious people and those sorts of things, not by denying it, but by explaining it in mechanistic terms. In other words, Darwin is not denying that the eye has the final, is for seeing. The eye exists in order to be able to see. So he's not denying that. But what Darwin's saying is you didn't need a big designer back there doing it or something like that. It's just, it's just, you know, shit happens. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. <clears throat> so this, this is what's radical about Darwin's theory. And so <clears throat> this, and I think this is a problem that people started to have early on. A lot of, I mean, Asa Gray, the American supporter was one. A lot of them said, yes, we're prepared to accept evolution. We're prepared even to accept natural selection, but we don't like, as it were, the blind law nature of natural selection. We think that if things work, then they're like organisms. Everything is, is kind of organic in some sense. Things don't, you know, don't just happen. They, they are as if designed for whatever reason. You might be a Christian, but you might want to say, no, I think there's some kind of what should we say, force, spiritual force, not necessarily a religious one, but a vital force. Well, of course, that's what Bergson called it, the French philosopher at the beginning of the 20th century. An élan vital, élan vital, or plural élan vital. And so what Bergson says is, yes, I believe in evolution, yes, I believe, but I don't believe that the I, I can even accept natural selection, but I don't believe 
in a blind force of natural selection. I think there has to be something designing it. So in other words, what you're doing is you're going back, you've got the two metaphors. Darwin wants to see everything like a clock. I mean, in the, in the sense of tick-tock, 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 without any, as it were, thought going behind it. I mean, like the Newtonian picture. I mean, you know, uh, planets go in ellipses. You know, I mean, we can explain why they go in ellipses, but what's, what's the point of them going in ellipses? That's just that's just that's what they do. It's yeah. not a meaningful question. I mean, it's you know, I mean, the joke is what? Why the moon? The moon, you know, exists in order to light the way home for drunken philosophers. And there was a, <laughs> there was a, no, there was a club in the 18th century, the Lunar Society, which basically did meet at the time of the full moon. So you know, because they didn't have street lamps at that time, so you know, people could see their way home. But of course, one doesn't want to say from the scientific point of view that the moon exists in order to light the way for drunken philosophers. The moon exists because of Newton's laws. That's, that's the way that it works. So you've got this, and that's what Darwin... Darwin's trying to be the sort of the Newtonian of biology, particularly the Newtonian of evolutionary biology, and that's what natural selection is. Whereas a lot of his critics and others who certainly the religious, but not even those who, who, there were a lot of people who felt, no, there has to be some kind of meaning to the way the world is. It's not just thrown together. Even if I don't believe in the existence of God, I think that the world somehow has some meaning. Now, what did this mean? Usually, one thing is they wanted to say, yes, we believe in adaptation, final cause, as much as Darwin does. But we don't think it can just have happened, as it were, shit happens. There has to be some kind of either conscious intelligence, or if, if not that, there has to be some kind of special kind of directive vital force, elan vital, or uh, <coughs> entelechy, it's also called, or that, that sort of thing. There, there's a, is it, this sounds similar to what happened when uh, Roger, uh, I think, or is it William Harvey? Uh, William Harvey talked about uh, the different uh, model for the the heart as a pump, which is mechanistic. And then a lot of people complained because they said, no, it's, they wanted to have this vital force. Is that a similar? Right, you got it. Absolutely. I mean, gotcha. what Harvey wants to say is, yes, it is a pump and it functions as a pump. But why, you know, why does it occur? You know, it that's just, just what it does. Yeah, yeah. That it, it just came about through blind law. There was it, there was no intention or purpose. Of course, the other thing that people usually wanted as well was a special status for us. Now, of course, Christians want that. We're made in the image of God. But of course, the interesting thing about Darwin's theory, and he recognizes this, is that basically his theory, natural selection, is as I say, shit happens. I, I got a lovely quote from a, a, a paleontologist called Jack Sikowski, and I was interviewing him about 30 years ago. I was talking about this. He said, look, he said, as far as I'm concerned, you know, intelligence, well, intelligence is okay, but it's expensive. You've got to have, you know, you've got to feed brains and that sort of thing. He said, as far as I'm concerned, being as dumb as shit in the middle of a herd and galloping is, is a perfectly good way of surviving and reproducing. In other words, 
don't, you know, he, what he said is, don't overdo the virtues of intelligence. That, you know, the question is, how do you survive? And it doesn't necessarily follow that having intelligence is the way. Because, I mean, the point is, you know, people go on about being vegans, but there are no vegans in the Pleistocene. And, you know, because you can't support brains on on tofu. You know, if, particularly if you live in light, you've got to have what? Protein, which means you've got to have meat, which means you've got to have the bodies of dead animals in order to eat them. So, but think of it. In order to catch dead animals, particularly fresh enough to eat, you've got to have the ability to go out and catch them and intelligence and all of these sorts of things, maybe the ability to make spears or arrows or that sort of thing and to catch them and to think about plotting and working together, all of these sorts of things. In other words, they're high demand. You've, you've got to, they, they require a lot of effort. Right. And what a Darwinian would say is yes, and it's going to work sometimes, but it doesn't necessarily follow that at a particular time, that's the right way to go. Or necessarily, it's always going to go that way, or even on average go that way, depending on the circumstances. Uh, you know, you might just, I mean, I mean, look at the dinosaurs, very efficient. And then came, you know, the comet <laughs> which hit the earth. And by and large, they got wiped out. And the only thing that got, got away with it was the little runty rat things, you know, which, which hid from them. Now, so what Darwin's saying is there's no progress. I mean, there's no inevitable progress. Whereas somebody like, it was certainly Bergson. And I mean, today, if you look at somebody like Edward O. Wilson, the evolutionary biologist who died uh, last year, the sociobiologist, I mean, he believes, he says, you know, there are four pinnacles of, of, of life. And the interesting thing is how humans have crossed over to the highest fourth pinnacle. In other words, Wilson has no doubt that we are superior to other animals. So as I say, what you've got then is this, I think, very interesting divide in evolutionary theory. On the one hand, you're going to have the hardline Darwinian who want to say, it's just all law. It just works according to Blind's law, and there's no ultimate purpose to anything. I mean, you can ask about purposes in the context of something. What, you know, what role does the, you know, what role does some particular aspect of the eye play? Or what role does this valve play in the heart? But if you ask, and you can say, what does the heart do in the body? But if you ask, well, what's the point of having a body? There ain't no point. There, you know, it, you know, it, it, it. Well, no, that you can't ask that kind of question. I mean, ultimately, it, it, it's just, uh, it's just tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, like, like the, like the planets going around the sun. They go around the sun. We know why they go around the sun. But is there a point to their going around the sun? I mean, you, it, it, you can't say, oh, well, they exist in order to provide a home for humans. You may believe that, and that's a religious answer you give, but it's not science. It's got nothing to do with science. And science, so on the one hand, then, you've got, let's call it Newtonian science, which is machine-like science, mechanism. And then on the other hand, you've got organic, let's call it organic science, which sees things as working as a whole functioning and, you know, with a, an overall purpose. And of course, being orga organisms, what one's going to see is the growth of the acorn into the oak 
I mean, things don't just sit on their bums and do nothing. They develop and get better and better. And then, of course, maybe they renew and do it again and again and again. But it's always growth. And, of course, what they want to say is if we look at the overall pattern of organisms, yes, we're evolutionists. But we think that there's a reason that that humans were bound to evolve. There's a reason why they evolved. And, you know, that's it. I mean, it's rather like, I mean, the, the analogy that they use is arms races. If you look at arms, no, if you think about it, first of all, you start with bows and arrows or axes and that sort of thing. And then you start to build up and you get, let's say, you get gunpowder and ways of and building walls, castles and that sort of thing. And then you get more sophisticated ways with guns and you you know, you use Galileo's laws and that sort of thing. And so you go on to the the First World War and that sort of thing. And what happened then? In the, Well, you start to get much more te- technological and you start to use computers. And so if you think about, I mean, think about the Ukraine today. Why are the Ukrainians doing so well against the much bigger, stronger Russians? Because they are much more adept at using sophisticated tools, drones, and those sorts of things. I mean, they're getting them from us, but they've got them at a level that the Russians just don't have. And so what we're seeing is the Russians retreating. And so what you've got is this picture of arms races, of weapons getting ever and ever more sophisticated and better and better and better and better like that. And so the argument is that's what you're going to see in the real world. So in other words, You've got these two pictures. Now, nobody's going to deny that natural selection exists. The question is, is natural selection in itself all sufficient? Which is what a Darwinian says, which means that there are no final causes, no ultimate purposes, and no progress. I mean, yeah, we are clever or whatever, but that's because we think we are. (laughs) <laughs> it's not because, no, it's not because nature tells us this, because nature says, yeah, you're doing very well, but dear God, as we well know from the Russians, in six months' time, we might have wiped all us, ourselves completely out. And the only thing which now exists are lizards or something like that and snails. Uh, you know, really. I mean, cockroaches. Oysters, yeah. You know? So uh, and if somebody says that that's terrible, but a Darwinian's not going to say, oh, it couldn't possibly happen. I mean, a Darwinian would say, oh, yeah, it's perfectly. I mean, we hope it won't happen. Right. And we hope <laughs> we can think about reasons to stop it happening. But if it did happen, we wouldn't then say, oh, well, that proves that Darwin was wrong. What we'd be inclined to say is, oh, dear, that proves that Darwin was only too right. That <laughs> You know? that there is no ultimate standard. And you may, however good you may be doing right now, there's no guarantee that this is going to continue. You might just, you know, whereas, of course, somebody who's organicist is going to say, no, we think there's direction. There's purpose. Now, if you're a Christian, you're not denying that evil or evil ways might screw it all up. And nobody, a, a, a Christian would never deny the possibility of nuclear war wiping us all out. But it would be in itself, not just for us, but in itself a bad thing, which ought not to have happened. 
Whereas a Darwinian would say, well, from our point of view, it's a bad thing, but ought not to happen? Where do you get your ought not to from? I mean, you know, shit happens. I mean, you know, better to be, I mean, this is, I mean, this is the way that evolution works. Whereas an organicist is going to say, oh dear, no, this, in, this was a bad thing in itself to have done. Not just because it affected us, but because at some level, you're going against the natural order of things in some sort of way. So as I say, I think this is the kind of debate that we've got going on about the nature of natural selection. I mean, yeah, I mean, sure, there's going to be some debate, obviously, about aspects of evolution. But by and large, other than, I mean, other than your fundamentalists, which means probably 60% of Americans, and in Florida, probably 75%, starting with our governor, but I mean, really, but seriously, by and large, serious thinkers don't want to deny evolution. No, of course they don't. And by and large, people aren't, uh, you know, there may be some debates about the age of the earth, that sort of thing. But even before Darwin, the, you know, the religious people were allowing that the earth obviously had to be way older than the Bible 6,000 years. And of course, by that time, they were also saying the evidence for Noah's flood you know, there isn't that kind of evidence for Noah's flood. I mean, so obviously Noah's flood is mythical. Maybe there was a limited flood somewhere in Asia Minor. Nobody's going to deny that. But to, to say that there was a flood which covered the whole of North America, is, you know, it's just not right. I mean, so as I say, we, we're not, at one level, we're not debating those sorts of things. But we are debating, I think, at a very fundamental level the way that the world works. And is it just, as it were, a, a meaningless machine? Now, it doesn't mean to say you can't have meaning. I think we've got meaning. I think, I mean, I wouldn't be talking to you, you wouldn't be talking to me, if we didn't think it was worthwhile. If we didn't think, yes, there's some value to what we're doing. It's better than, what should we say, just sitting and watching college football and drinking our, our heads <laughs> off. I mean, you know, to think of the lowest possible form of life. Uh, but, but seriously, um, so I'm not saying there's not meaning, but the meaning is meaning that we create. It's meaning that we, as it were, find value in. It's not meaning that we find out there, as it were. Is it, would another way to talk about the difference be that in one, the purposes are uh, maybe private or metaphorical uh, with mechanism, and then purposes are real, like yeah. uh, universal and absolute with organicism? Yeah, I think that would be right. I mean, uh, objective would be the word that you might want to use. Whereas I, I want to say, at some level, these are subjective decisions. Now, it doesn't mean to say that I can't argue with you, because I want to say we've all evolved as a group together, and this is the way we know from practice that this is the way that's going to lead to general happiness and those sorts of things. And so, yes, we've evolved the, I mean, as we're, we're animals, these are natural to us. But notice, they're natural to us because we're humans and that sort of thing. And that's the way we work. They're not natural because objectively they are so. And of course, this, is, this means, for instance, that if we get new knowledge, you and I might well want to change our opinions. I mean, I'll give you a clear-cut example. Sexual promiscuity in the 50s before the pill. No, in the 50s before the, the pill arrived, 
I think a lot of people of, of our kind of social class or whatever would say, yeah, we can see that there's, yeah, you, you really shouldn't go all the way. That there's, there's a real point to abstaining because the fact of the matter is you don't get pregnant, but girls get pregnant. And that causes, that causes un, untold unhappiness for them and their offspring and everything. So let's cool it, okay? Let's cool it because, no, you know, because, and I grew up with this. I mean, yeah. I grew up with this. And, you know, I, it wasn't always easy, but I accepted it. And it, it, I could see why. It was, yeah. I mean, you didn't want the, the girls that you went to university with to be, to be getting pregnant because, you know, they'd have to drop out. You'd be in shit. I mean, everything. And then 1965, the pill arrives. And suddenly, young women have as much control over their sexuality as young men. And I think by 1970, let's say, I think that people would say, well, you know, it's your choice. It's, no, it, it, at least at that, that's, I mean, it doesn't mean to say that morality doesn't get involved. I mean, it still means that rape is wrong. It still means that you shouldn't just use women for your own purposes and lie and cheat and everything like that. So we're not saying there's no moral things, but we are saying the whole idea of two young people, married or unmarried, having sex, it's not quite the moral issue that it was 15 years ago. Why? Because now we know perfectly well the girl, when they all do, they take protection, they don't get pregnant. And so it's not an issue. So I'm not saying you're not going to get changes. But of course, these are going to be changes usually wrought by technology and those sorts of things. And, and, and that's the sort of thing which happens. I, and incidentally, I talk about this in my hate book. So when we, next time round, we can talk more about some of these sorts of things and, and that sort of thing. But so it doesn't mean there's going to be no change, but it's all going to be changed within the context of humans and what they want, what makes them happy and that sort of thing. Where it's not, as it were, objectively, two young people having sexual intercourse before marriage is objectively wrong. You know? which, of course, people, some people want to say even to this, this day it is the case. Whereas, you know, I think most of us would say, well, up yours. I mean, you know, give me a break. Uh, but no, seriously. I mean, I think, I'm not saying there are, of course there are. A lot of evangelicals and others would say, no, it's morally the case that. Whereas I think people like us would say, well, it's certainly moral, but it's not morally the case that. It's certainly moral that you should respect each other. You should not, you know, that, that if you're having sexual relations, they should be on, on a level of equality and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's, yeah, we agree to that. So I think there are these very fundamental metaphysical differences. At one level, yeah, it's Christianity, if you like, religion versus non-religion. But at another level, it's not really that. Because I think one could be perfectly religious and say, but of course, what's happened is that this is the way that God's made us. This is the way. And God gives us the responsibilities to behave. God, God's not saying rape's okay. If you, want, if you want to do it, then rape's okay. God's not saying that. But God's saying, I'm not laying it down as, you know, the, laid out, as it were, the will of God or something like that, which has no you know, I just made this up capriciously. 
you know, I could say, well, you know, write, stealing library books is okay on Thursdays. You know, you know how some museums have a Thursday evening is free. I mean, the Art Museum, uh, the Art Institute in Chicago, I think from six to nine on Thursday evenings, you can go in without, without. Now, God is not going to say, well, rape is wrong, except between six and nine on Thursdays. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't work that way. And, and of course, Christians don't think that either. But they could think that at some level, it's God's decision. And if God decided that it was okay to rape between six and nine, God could do that. And if he wanted to do that, I mean, Job says that. Where were you when I made, you know, listen to what I'm saying, Sonny. You know, I, I, I sowed it. I, I reaped it. I ground it. I baked it. I'm fucking eating it. And that's basically the God of Job. Well, as I say, I think a lot of Christians aren't comfortable with that. But at some level, there's a certain buying into this. Whereas, as I say, on the other side, you've got, it isn't. So, as I say, I think you've got two fairly fundamental divides. At one level, yes, it's, what should I say, religious belief versus non-religious belief. But it, 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 it's a bit more complex than that, because I, could, I think a lot of religious people are very happy with the mechanistic sort of view. I mean, I think, for instance, Quakers, would, uh, Unitarians, would, you know, they'd say, yeah, that's the way it works. I mean, yeah, it, you know, God is not laying down, as it were, capriciously laws for us. We're, we're, God made us as we are, but it, then God said, this is as you are. Now work it out, and if things change, then, but it's got to come from you. It's not going to come from me. It's got to come from you. Whereas I think Christians might be more inclined to say, no, St. Paul's, I mean, they do. St. Paul says that sex between men is wrong. End of argument. Or look at the churches. St. Paul says women should not preach in church. End of argument. Because God's laid it down. So there is that difference. Now, even as I say with those who don't believe in uh, God, but nevertheless, there are people like philosophers like Thomas Nagel, for instance, who, uh, uh, who certainly, John Dupre, who certainly believe that there are, as it were, objective, I won't say absolutes, but objective facts about values and about evolution. That evolution, as it were, is not just blind, caused by blind laws, that at some level there's a kind of elan vital, a kind of vital force, which kind of teeny end, end aspiring vital force, the kind that Bergson's talking about, or something of that kind, and that clearly evolution is not blind, that we humans are at some level, as it were, distinctively different from animals. We're not just super animals, we're different. That we have reason, we have all of these things, and even the nicest animals. You think of, you know, you think of your, your cairn terriers, as I walk by cairn terriers, nice little things. And I, yeah, they can feel guilty, but by and large, they, you know, they're not reasoning animals or anything like that. They're just as likely to run out on the road because it's exciting and get run over, you know, because this is the way, no, this is, you know, they're just not thinking beings in the way that we are, or as we're finding, crapping on the carpet, you know, when we're not around. Uh, yeah, right. I, mean, I, I don't know about you, but by and large, I mean, let me put it this way, your kids are going to do it when they're three. But if they do it when they're 13, 
you're going to be really pissed off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, you, I hope so. Gonna, oh, my goodness. Yeah, you're not yeah. going to say, oh, well, you know, shit happens. Well, of course it does. But you're going to say, that's <laughs> not an excuse. You right. are a responsible being. You know, we taught you. You now have the awareness to know that doing this is wrong. I mean, end of argument. I mean, you know. You see that uh, as a, a form of like so, uh, almost social collective or right, social right. bargaining. We're not, saying, we're, we're not saying you're wrong because God says it's wrong. We're saying it's wrong because you're a human being. I'm a human being. And we recognize it's part of our nature that we should not behave in this sort of way. I mean, you know, if it's not something that God laid down, it's the way we, we are. So there you go. So as I say, I do think that I do think that nat I think natural selection is really interesting, and I'm always I always like to quote the the sonnet by uh, Thomas Hardy at this point. Now Thomas Hardy was an English novelist and poet. He wrote, you know, Tess of the D'Urbervilles and uh, Far from the Madding Crowd and that sort of thing. He was raised as a member of the Church of England, but then he read Darwin, and basically, what he saw. What he saw was the very thing that I'm saying to you. This is the poem. It's a sonnet, which means that it's got 14 lines, four, four, six, okay? And remember, sonnets have, they, they rhyme like A, B, B, A, or sometimes A, B, A, B, and then C, D, D, C. Uh, I mean, there's variation, but they're, they're not, not, they're rhyming poems, okay? So, okay, so this is Hap then. Hardy wrote this, I think, in 1866. So this was, he'd read or, The Origin of Speech. And basically what he's saying is what I'm talking about today. He's seeing that ultimately with natural selection, there's no ultimate absolute purpose or ends. If you're a Christian, there are, but that's not in Darwinism. If you take Darwinism on its own, there's no meaning. And this is the whole point that he's making. Okay, so the first, the first line. If but some vengeful God would call to me from up the sky and laugh, thou suffering thing, know that thy ecstasy, thy sorrow is my ecstasy, that thy love's loss is my hate's profit, profiting. Sorry, but if some vengeful God should call to me up from the sky and laugh, thou suffering thing, know that thy sorrow is my ecstasy, that thy love's loss is my hate's profile. In other words, if God were a, a total nasty, and if God said, boy, I'm really enjoying this, making your life miserable. No, I'm doing this because I like doing this, okay? Then what Hardy says, and this is the next part, then I would bear it, clench myself and die, steeled by the sense of our unmerited, half eased in that a powerfuller than I had willed and meted me the tears I shred. In other words, what, he, what he's saying then is, yeah, okay, it would be awful for me, but at a certain level, I'm still in the position of saying, up you, God. I mean, okay, I realize you're doing this, but I equally, as it were, have the right and ability to hate you for what you're doing. It. In other words, I know you're doing this. I know I can't help it because you're eased in a powerfuler than I had willed and meted me the tears I shred. Okay, I would bear it, clench myself and die, steal by the sense of our unmerited. In other words, if God did this, it would be awful. But at the same time, I could, okay, I can fight back in the sense of saying, 
What you're doing is wrong. It's injustice. You ought not to be doing this. But now we get to the final six lines. But not so. How arrives it joy lies slain? And why unblooms the best hope ever sown? Cross casualty obstructs the sun and rain, and dicing time for gladness casts a moan. Those purblind do doomsters had as readily strown blisses about my pilgrimage as pain. Those purb, in other words, the God, we don't have God, but we just have randomness. Those purblind doomsters had as readily strown blisses about my pilgrimage as, as pain. In other words, there's no reason. It could be happy. It could be. It could be bad. There's just no reason. In other words, from moving at least from a God that I understand that I can dislike because He's real and He's there. Now there's nothing. It might work. It might not work. But either way, there's it, there's no point. In other words, if it's nice, it's nice. But not because anything anybody brought it about. Just happens and. If it's nasty, it's nasty. Not because anybody brought it around, because it happens. So what, he, what Hardy is saying in that sonnet is, yeah, we're in a different world. We're in a world away from God, whether it's a good God or a bad God, whether it's a God who loves us or a God who hates us. You know, a God who loves people in Tallahassee because Ian did not affect them, and a God who hates people in, in Central Florida because Ian did do a job on them. Okay? Okay. I, either way, I don't, either I like God, I don't like God, but God is there and I can react to him. And if I live in Tallahassee, I can say, oh, thank you, God. I'm so glad for what you've done. And if I live in Central Florida, I can say, God, you shit. Why did you treat us like this? You know, I voted Republican. Why are you treating me like this? You know, I can understand that. But if it's, well, I don't know, just happened. I mean, we got it. You didn't. No reason, no purpose. Then suddenly, oh, my goodness, there's, there's no explanation for why we're doing OK. No explanation for why it went wrong for you. No idea that. We're going to improve because of trials, you know, the, the veil of soul making. That I mean, often that's a big Christian one, isn't it? That, you know, suffering is an important part of living because it's only through suffering that we learn to grow and to overcome it and to be, become better. You know, we all, I mean, we, we all say, yeah, if it's too easy for you, you're just not going to mature and develop. It's when you get hardships, when, you know, suddenly, your dad says, I'm sorry, but, you know, we're just, something's gone wrong. We're just the business. I just am not going to be able to pay your, your university fees this coming year. And then you have to say, oh, all right, I'm going to borrow or I'm going to get a job at McDonald's and work there in the evenings to pay. You know, but the idea is, yeah, but in four or five years, I will have grown and strengthened. Of course, some people don't. But I will, in four or five years, I will be that much better because I learned to stand on my own two feet. And when I, when I came up against adversity, I didn't say, oh, I, I dealt with it. And that, of course, is where you've got a God who that makes some sense of it in that sort of way. Whereas if it's all, well, you know, it happened. Uh, yeah, but uh, there's no point to it. You're not, you know, yeah, you, you've improved, but... 
not in, there's no absolute reason. You know, you're doing better, okay, but there's, there's nothing. I mean, you know, I could have strewn about my, you know, like pleasures as much as pain. And that, of course, is what we're talking about here. So as I say, I think Hardy's sonnet, Hap, basically sums up what I've been talking about in the last hour or so. Yeah, I could think of no uh, more, uh, no better summary than the crass causality uh, or causality. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, it's absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Roos. Uh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs>